0: Part of me. Wants us just to keep praising and worshiping and lifting high His name. It's an amazing thing to just be reminded of God's goodness, His mercy, and all that He's done in and through us. And yeah, we can never stop worshiping Him. Well, good morning. I'm feels good to be back up here so soon. Um, I'm grateful for the privilege and the honor. Grateful for Matt and Chuck for allowing me to stand at this pulpit and to bring you God's Word. And, you know, again, it's been mentioned a few times, but um, let's continue to pray for uh, Chuck and Margie as they're dropping off Michael at the Citadel. Um, I pray that that time would be a joyous time where they would celebrate, but also take time to grieve. You know, it's, it's a transition of life and a lot of joy, but also a lot of deep, deep sadness and emotions. So um, we'll keep them in, in our prayers. But uh, Chuck, in asking me if I would be willing to preach today, he gave me two options. You can do whatever you want, preach anything you want, and that's, that's very dangerous, let me tell you. Or you can pick up where I leave off in the book of Luke. And so, for me, I've preached several standalone sermons, but there's something beautiful in continuing in a series, continuing what's been done before. There's a offense of knowing I have to preach and continue what's been done before, And stay within that realm. And so what I find is when I preach as part of a series, um, even if I haven't done the series, but if I'm picking up where someone's left off, it it encourages me to dig even deeper in my study to make sure that we're still heading in that same direction. And so I decided to make the choice, well, I will do uh, and follow along where, where Chuck is led. Which left me with another choice do I do this small little section here, or do I just skim it and go on to the next section? Because let me tell you, the next section is full of beautiful, beautiful treasures and application, and it would be very easy to skip this, these few verses. In fact, most of the commentaries that I looked at did that. So, So, but, you know, As someone who believes that all scripture is profitable and is there for a reason, I felt as if, no, let's let's stick with these small verses and and see what they have in store for us. And so if you have your Bibles and are able to stand, would you please stand as we look at Luke 18 31 through 34? Luke 18 31 through 34, the word of the Lord says God, I come before you, lifting high your name, knowing that you indeed are the only one who can save us. And God, as we look at and examine and unpack this passage of, of, your, of your upcoming death, knowing that you were going to the cross, I pray that we would be humbled by that fact, humbled that you willingly walked up that hill towards Calvary. And as a result, we can be here today as your sons and your daughters, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so in newness of life, may we give us all, may you give us all, um, may we be humbled and be forever changed. And as we study this word, may you soften our hearts to what it is that you're wanting us to, to learn. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So again, for context, it's been said a few times, but just so that we have that reminder and that working understanding, Luke um, has divided his book up into two main sections. The first part is where he refers to uh, Jesus' early life, his childhood, his birth, but then also his early ministry. As he's getting his followers, he's uh, bringing them along, he's teaching them. This is where we see a lot of his sermons, his teachings, his early miracles. But then in chapter 9, we see that transition where all of a sudden Jesus tells his disciples that, or the book says that Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He has set his face to Jerusalem. This is where Jesus begins his journey towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. And for the remainder of the book, we see Jesus beginning his heading. He's beginning to head towards Jerusalem, he's heading towards his death. And as such, he begins to prepare his disciples. He begins to change what he teaches about. He teaches them what the kingdom of heaven is like and what does it cost to be part of that kingdom? What does it cost to follow him? He begins to teach them um, in parables about how they are going to suffer. But he also tells them multiple times that the reason why they're going to Jerusalem is so that he, he can die. And this is the third time that we see Jesus tell his disciples that he indeed is going to die, that he is going to the cross. And we'll see whether or not the disciples get it. You know, sometimes people, it takes multiple times for them to get, get the message. But. but over the last few weeks, we see Jesus continuing to teach his disciples in the crowds that were following them. If you've been here the last few weeks, you you heard Chuck preach on how Jesus told a parable of of a persistent widow who found justice, how he did a parable next of a rich man, a Pharisee, and a tax collector who were worshiping in the temple and the tax collector realizing that he had nothing to bring to God except a cry for mercy. We saw Jesus being surrounded by children and him welcoming them and telling his followers that if you want to be part of the kingdom, you have to be like a child in faith. And then last week, we saw that Jesus talked about the rich, rich young ruler who, in his own arrogance and pride, thought that he had earned his way into the kingdom of heaven and yet He couldn't let go of his idol. And how if we are to live for Christ, we have to continually be putting to death the things that we hold more dear than God. And so, Jesus is getting ever closer to the cross. In verse 35 in the next section, we see that they are near Jericho. It's a city about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. And actually, in chapter 19, we're told that this is where Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, beginning His last week on earth. So we are very literally in the last two weeks of Jesus' life. It's coming to an end. His ministry on earth is coming to an end. And so these are the last few words that Jesus will say to His disciples. And in verse 34, let's see that... um, that Jesus is letting his disciples know that they are part of a sovereign plan. That's point number one, that they are part of a sovereign plan. In verse 31, we see that taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. He was being literal. Jerusalem sits on top of a mountain, and so literally to get to Jerusalem, you have to go up a mountain. And just for your information and edification, um, one thing that's cool, if you look in the book of Psalms, oftentimes you'll see above the psalm a title that usually tells you who wrote it or why they wrote it. But in a few select psalms, you have a title, The Song of Ascent. From Psalms 120 to 134, you have these psalms that say, These are songs of ascent. And what they would be is that as pilgrims and worshipers would walk up to Jerusalem, up to the temple, they would actually sing these songs. It's the hymn book. They would, as they're going up to worship, they would climb the mountain and they would literally be looking up at the temple, the house of God, and be lifting up their voices to God in prayer and worship. Like That's just a beautiful picture that we see that Our lives are to be acts of worship, even how we walk to the house of the Lord. But that's not necessarily the purpose of why Jesus was was going to Jerusalem. We see that Jesus tells his disciples that they are going to Jerusalem, that everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So let's take this piece by piece. First off, Jesus says that everything written about the Son of Man. Well, who is the Son of Man? In literal sense, Jesus is referring to himself. He's saying, I am the Son of Man. In fact, if you look through the Gospels, this is the title that Jesus most often used in describing himself. More than Messiah, more than Son of God, is Son of Man. That is the title that he chose for himself. And the reason why he chose that for himself, and there are multiple layers, but the most core reason is it is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, which is a reference to the Messiah, the coming Savior sent by God to save Israel. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts, these mythical creatures of different bodies and heads, and it's stuff of of just... Nightmares and myth. But they represent these four kingdoms that are coming to the earth to rule and reign. But after each of these four beasts had their time on the earth, Daniel has this vision of the Son of Man. In verse 13 of chapter 7, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Messiah, the one that was coming. And so every time Jesus said, I am the son of man, it was a way of saying, I am he. I'm the one you've been waiting for, the one to right all wrongs, to have this everlasting kingdom on earth. But it was also a way of somewhat hiding his identity, of not saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the son of God. And so for a lot of people just saying, oh, I'm the son of man, well, that's a nice way of saying I'm human. And so for a lot of people, they didn't get it, but some did. So it was a way of him identifying with his messiahship without just literally saying, hey, I'm the guy, I'm God. So Jesus is this son of man. He's the Messiah. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem because everything written about me by the prophets, is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be accomplished. And so, I guess the next question is, well, what did the prophets say about him? There are some scholars who say that there are over 300 different prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, each of which that he fulfilled. He accomplished each and every one of them. And just to give you an idea of of just some of them, let's look at some of these prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled just concerning his his death and his resurrection. First off, in Psalm 41.9, it says that he would be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And as we continue, just picture in your mind what we see in the gospel when it comes to Jesus in this last week, and just see how everything fell into place. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah eleven twelve, 12 it says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. The betrayal money was used to buy a potter's field after being thrown down. Zechariah eleven twelve 12-13 Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. He would die alongside criminals. Isaiah 53, 12 Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. He would have his hands and his feet pierced. Psalm twenty-two sixteen says, "For dogs encompass me; a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet." And Zechariah twelve ten says, "And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me." On whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Lots would be cast on his clothes. Psalm 22:18. "They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. His bones would not be broken. Exodus twelve forty six in referring to the Passover lamb. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Psalm thirty four twenty says, He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. He would be buried among the rich. Isaiah 53, 9, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He would be a sacrifice for sin, Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He would resurrect from the dead, Psalm 16, 10 and 49 through 15. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. And, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. That's just some of them. The Old Testament was looking forward to Jesus. And every step of the way, God was writing this magnificent, beautiful story. From the very beginning, from Genesis 15, when God first gave that first indication of a gospel, God was writing a story of redemption, of rescue, that the wrong of sin would be done away with. And piece by piece throughout the Bible, we see these small hands looking forward to the coming Jesus, the coming Messiah. And Jesus is here saying, we're going up that mountain and we're going to do it. All that stuff that was talked about by me, I'm going to do it. It's going to happen. The Exodus um, passage about the Passover lamb really got me uh, thinking about Passover. If you think about it, Jesus went up the mountain to celebrate Passover, where yearly they would remember the first Passover, the 10th plague, when the firstborn would die. But God gave the Israelites an instruction for them to take a blameless and spotless lamb and kill it, to spread its blood on their doorpost of their house with a branch of hyssop. And when God would pass over that night, he would see the blood and spare that house. But anyone who didn't have the blood of the lamb on their door, they would lose their firstborn. Think about it. Jesus is the perfect and spotless Lamb of God whose blood was spilt so that we would not have to endure His wrath. And hyssop, it's a branch known for its medicinal qualities, but in the Jewish tradition, it also has strong connections to purification. Jesus' blood purifies us from our sin. This is God's plan, His sovereign plan, all of it working towards this one goal of Jesus going to the cross. And Jesus knew it. He knew why He was here. He knew why He was going to the cross. He knew that He was part of God's sovereign plan. But he also, and this is point number two, he's a willing savior. In 32, after telling the disciples that everything written by the Son of Man would be accomplished, he starts laying it out. This is what's going to happen. This is step by step by step everything that I'm about to endure. We see Jesus tell his disciples that the Son of Man, the Messiah, him, would be delivered over to the Gentiles. This is an important thing because if Jesus had not been handed over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, he never would have ended up on a cross. The cross was a Roman implement of death. In fact, when Jesus was arrested, he was arrested by the Jewish leaders and they took him onto trial and they tried to convict him of blasphemy of speaking against God which if he had been convicted of that he would have been stoned like we see with Stephen in the book of Acts but even though the Jewish leaders had rigged the trial they could not find two witnesses to agree on the same testimony so they couldn't get him for that but rather than letting him go they took him to Pilate the Roman governor and their claim was Jesus has spoken against the Roman government, that he was going to kick them out, that he was going to do treason. And though Pilate found no guilt in Jesus, the pressure of the Jewish leaders saying, if you don't do this for us, we're going to go to Caesar, Pilate gave in, and he sentenced Jesus to die by crucifixion for treason for insurrection. So Jesus had to be handed over to the Gentiles. We see that after he would be handed to the Gentiles, we see that he would be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. During the trial, Jesus was given garments to make him look like a king. He had a robe put around him he had a crown of thorns put into his head, and they mocked him, saying, "Here he is, the king of the Jews." They spat on him. They mocked him, they slapped him, they say, "Prophesy who hit you." Jesus had been betrayed by one of his best friends, and all the rest of them ran away in fear. He's alone and he's having his authority, his identity, everything that he had given his life for being thrown in his face. He would be mocked and shamefully treated. Verse 33, And after flogging him, I don't know about you, but the Romans are very good at torture. When they would flog someone, they would take a whip, and they had, it in, they had it, the ends cut into nine different strands. It's called the cat of nine tails. And in each of these strands, they would embed pieces of metal and bone so that when they whipped someone, those strands would dig into a person's back. And so when they pulled it back, it would rip off the flesh. And the Romans were so good at torture, they knew that 40 times, 40 lashes would kill a man. So they stopped at 39. This is the pain that Jesus endured by being flogged. He would be flogged and they will kill him. Again, Jesus went to the cross. Crucifixion was one of the most torturous agonizing forms of death possible. And the Romans mastered the science of it. For those of you who don't know, they would drive a nail in between the tendons of the arms and in the feet. And they would do it in such a way so that, basically, you had to pull yourself up for each breath. You had to pull yourself up, catch your breath, and then let go in order to breathe. So day in and day out, you'd pull yourself up, catch a breath, and lower, all of the while feeling the weight of your body and the agony of those nails. People didn't die from the pain. They died from, suffi- from suffocation because eventually they lost the energy to pull themselves up, and they would die. But it would take days, days of, of agony, of screaming, of crying out for help. And the Romans did it for on purpose. They had crucifixions laid out in public. It wasn't this hidden away side corner thing. It was out in public. It was a way of the Romans saying, look at what happens when you go against us. It was a daily reminder of one, we're going punish, to punish our evildoers, but we're also going to keep you from doing crime. Jesus died but he also tells his disciples on the third day he would rise. His story didn't end with the death. Resurrection would happen three days later. But think about it. Jesus just laid out everything that would happen to him. He knew all the pain and the suffering that he would endure He didn't even mention having the wrath of God poured out upon him, the weight of sin laid upon his shoulders, having the perfect relationship that he had with God for all of eternity broken. Jesus knew all these things, and he still went to the cross. How many of us, if we knew that we were going to suffer that much, if we knew that if we go to this place, we're going to suffer that kind of way, we still willingly choose that path. I know it would be very difficult for me. I don't like to suffer. I don't like to experience pain and hardship. And yet Jesus did. And don't think that he was just ignorant. He knew what he was going to go through. We see in the garden that he's crying out to God, sweating literal blood, uh, sweat drops of blood because he is so stressed out and worried. And he's crying out to God, God, if there be any other way than the cross, please let that happen. But not my will, but yours. Jesus understood that even if he didn't want the cross, it was what was needed. And so he walked up that mountain. He walked up the mountain. But we see that unfortunately, even though Jesus very clearly laid out what was going to happen, the disciples didn't get it. I mean, it's kind of hard to be more clear, hey, everything written about me, it's going to be fulfilled and, you know, going to be turned over to the Gentiles, beaten, mocked, flogged, going to die, rise again. That's the plan. But they didn't get it. Verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, before we get too um, upset at the disciples for just missing this. Because, again, Jesus very clearly laid it out. I think it's important that we go to everyone's favorite subject, grammar. Um, We see in this verse three different verbs. Understood, was hidden, and grasped. Two of these verbs, understood and grasped, are active verbs, meaning that the disciples were the ones doing the action. They did not understand. They did not grasp what Jesus was saying. They didn't understand. They didn't comprehend. So, they didn't get it. They themselves did not understand what Jesus was saying, but why? Why did they not understand, even though Jesus clearly stated, what was going to happen? Well, I think one of the logical explanations is is they weren't looking for it. They had their own idea of what was going to happen, and that didn't fit into what they were thinking. See, not in this passage, but in the sister passages of Mark and Matthew, we see that those authors give a little bit more detail about what happens next. See, Matthew, Mark, and Luke share similar stories, but they change details just to sort of add flavor to their stories. And after Jesus tells the disciples, hey, I'm going to the cross to die, in Matthew and Mark, we see that James and John come to Jesus with a ridiculous request. I believe it's Mark even goes as far as saying that... No, in Matthew's version, James and John are joined by their mother. Which sort of adds an extra layer, like, hey, we need to bring our mom along for this request. But think about it. Right after Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I'm going to suffer and die on a cross, James and John walk up to him. So Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, and when you come into your power... Can me and my brother sit at your right hand and your left hand? Like, we want seats at the table. We want powerful positions. Jesus just told the disciples that he's going to die, and yet they're jockeying for position. See, in their mind, they misunderstood what the Messiah was going to do. In their mind... And in a lot of Jewish minds, the Messiah was going to be a conquering king. He was going to be a savior, but his savior would be earthly in nature. He would come, he would kick out the Romans, and he would establish Israel as a nation, the likes of which would go back to the kingdom of David, back when he was king. They saw Jesus as this conquering king. And so, for them, Jesus talking about suffering and dying, that didn't fit into the plan. It wasn't what they expected. It's not what they believed or what they wanted. And we see that in multiple ways because anytime Jesus would talk about suffering, they would get upset. Peter told Jesus, No, Jesus, you're not going to die. To which Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Peter in the garden after Jesus was being arrested, again, not part of the plan, pulled out his sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Because for Peter and for the rest of the disciples, Jesus' suffering and dying meant that all that they were wanting and expecting wouldn't come to pass. They didn't get it, even though Jesus had told them multiple times, this is who I am. This is why I've come to earth. So after James and John make the ridiculous request and the other disciples are upset at them because they didn't ask for it first, Jesus has this verse in Mark 10, 42 to 45. And Jesus called called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must serve, must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, not came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They didn't get it. They wanted to be rulers. And yet Jesus clearly tells them that's not how this works in the kingdom. If you want to be first, you're going to be last. You're going to serve. And part of me serving as the Son of Man is that I'm going to go and die. And so the disciples missed who Jesus was. They missed understanding who the real Jesus is. And unfortunately, it took him rising from the dead for them to finally get it. Because they finally understood Oh, so that's what Jesus meant when he said he was going to suffer and die and rise again on the third day. He was being serious. So the disciples' own agenda kept them from understanding who Jesus was. But again, I mentioned that there were three verbs. Two of which were active, but one of them is passive. This This saying was hidden from them. Was hidden. It's passive meaning that the object of the sentence is the one doing the action, not the subject. So someone hid this statement from the disciples. Someone kept the disciples from understanding. So yes, the disciples had their part to play with their own agendas and ideas that were about Jesus that were wrong. But also, someone kept this truth from them as well. And that's God. Who else but God can keep keep them from understanding? So why would God do that? Why would God hide and conceal this truth of Jesus' statement from them? Again, I mentioned that if if the disciples understood actually what was going on, they had a tendency to try and stop it. Peter, again, not, not very good in these moments of trying to follow what Jesus wants to do. But whether or not this is the main reason or not of the disciples trying to stop Jesus, I think it's important for us to understand that there are things that God does not reveal to us. We have a lot more revealed to us than they did through God's word. But at the end of the day, there are some things that God just says, you don't get to know. And we have to be okay with that. As hard as it is, how many of us have at times wondered, what is God doing? Why would he allow this to happen? I had no idea what this past year would look like for me. I certainly didn't imagine that I would um, lose my job in the way that I did. I didn't imagine a lightning bolt striking the side of my apartment building causing a fire to happen below it making me and my wife homeless for a time. And now as I serve as a chaplain in the hospital, I very regularly hear from people who love the Lord asking, why is my loved one in pain? Why are they suffering? Why did they die? We all have things in our lives that we just wish to know, why is this happening? But very often, we don't, get the, we don't get the answers. Think about the book of Job. Job, we're told from the very beginning, he is a righteous man. He loves the Lord. He actually offers sacrifices for the sins of his sons and daughters, just in case they sin. Like if anyone was righteous, it would be Job. And yet, in an instant, he lost all of his possessions. All of his animals, he lost his health, and he lost all of his children in a day. And throughout the book, his friends are trying to offer him reasons as to why he's suffering so much. Well, Job, surely you must have done something wrong in order to earn this kind of suffering. And Job's like, no, I know I'm a sinner, but I haven't done anything that warrant this level of suffering. And And throughout the book, Job continues to tell his friends, I want an audience with God. I want to plead my case and say, God, what is going on? I am innocent of this suffering. And at the end of the book, God shows up. And suddenly Job becomes quiet. And God tells Job, this is who I am. I am the creator of the universe. These strong mythical beasts that you're seeing, I'm more powerful than them. I know all things. I can do all things. Job has never given an answer for why he suffered and why he lost all the things that he lost. But he was shown who God is. And for Job, that was enough. He relented of his case, and he trusted God. And so even though there are these things that we want more than anything to know, why did this happen? We have to look at God, see who he is, and just say, God, I don't know. I don't understand, but I trust you. I know you. Again, there are things that we might not never know. But we can trust who God is. And we can trust that whatever the reason is, it's okay because He's the one who's, in, who's doing it. I found it interesting that um, in looking at the Bible plan that your mom, pan. Pam put out there for us on the Bible app. Day three talked about that tension of God's sovereignty, of knowing that God is sovereign and good, and yet sometimes that wondering, well, what's God doing? It's it's what this is. It's what this is. So again, there are some things that God does not reveal to us. There's also times where we get in our own way. Where we miss Jesus with our own agendas. That was certainly the case for the disciples. There's a not very good movie that I cannot recommend, but there's a part of it, there's a part of it that is funny in the saddest way. It's Talladega Nights, where the main character, Ricky Bobby, is sitting at his table with his family about to enjoy dinner, and he starts praying. In his prayer, he starts praying to eight-pound, six-pound, newborn infant baby Jesus in his golden fleece diaper. Different kind of prayer than I've ever heard. His wife or one of his family members say, you know Jesus grew up, right? You can pray to adult Jesus. And Ricky responds by saying this, well, look. I like Christmas Jesus best when I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus, teenage Jesus, or bearded Jesus, or whoever you want. His best friend responded that he likes to picture Jesus in a tuxedo shirt because Jesus likes to be formal but also likes to party. And one of his kids says, well, I like ninja Jesus. And it's it's funny, but it's, it's true in some ways that we get these images of who Jesus is that isn't actually who he is. We make Jesus in our image. We make Jesus out to be what we want him to be, that we miss him. And we end up following ninja Jesus, feminist Jesus, social gospel, social works Jesus, white American evangelical Jesus, that we miss Jesus of the Bible. Guys, I pray that we do not miss Jesus. And the way we do that is we learn about who he actually is and what he said, and we do that by being in his word. And so again, we trust what we do not know And we look to the real Jesus, not the ones that we have our own agendas for, but we also follow him up that mountain. We follow him to the cross because it's there that we find life. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing going up that hill. And he invited his disciples to go along with him. And so that invitation remains to us. Will we trust him? And when we follow him, knowing that suffering might await us. But behind that, behind the cross, is resurrection and new life.